listening to Keeping It Real with Janine, your guide to living an authentic, healthy life. I'm Janine, and I'm excited for today's super inspiring conversation on overcoming addiction. Addiction can take many forms, gambling, computer, cell phones, drugs, sex, alcohol, and many, many more. Why do people become addicted to any behavior? How does it affect our lives and those around us? What can we do to overcome the increasing problem of addiction? My guests for this important conversation are Dr. Matthew Flory, Lynette Isaac, Jason Ellerbeck, and Justice Bartlett. Now, I've already recorded a truly heartfelt, raw conversation with Jay and Justice. They've both taken back their lives from years of drug addiction. Their poignant stories and razor-sharp insights into the arena we call addiction are a must-listen to, and their conversation will be following this one. Okay, so Dr. Matt Flory, I asked you to be a part of this conversation because of your functional medicine background. I knew you would have an interesting perspective, and you have had a personal experience with someone close to you. So I'm really glad that you could carve out time from your busy schedule and welcome. Thanks, Janine. Thanks for having me today. (laughs) Oh, you're welcome. Now, for those of you who are interested in functional medicine, which I truly believe is the wave of the future, I direct you to my podcast with Dr. Matt Flory. Uh, It's episode number 14 at therealjanine.com website. Okay, let's hear from Lynette now. Lynette Isaac is a core alignment specialist. She's an emotional wisdom trainer, a Genesis process addictions counselor, peer recovery mentor, and a certified mediator. Her insightful creativity guides coaching clients in identifying obstacles that block their dreams from being reality, while bringing a fresh perspective on how to live a life of freedom and purpose. Lynette specializes in recovery from addiction and also has had a personal family experience with addiction. Thank you so much for contributing your experience and expertise, Lynette, and welcome. Thanks, Janine. Uh, I'm so glad to have you both here. Um, I thought the a good starting place might be, what is addiction? And maybe you can both talk from your different perspectives, um, how you see addiction, how you would define addiction. Matt, why don't you go first? Sure thing. So from my perspective in looking largely at the uh, physiological factors of addiction, mm-hmm. you somewhat alluded to it. We often associate addiction with a drug, mm-hmm. but when you break it down empirically to some of the most basic fundamental, and we'll use the word functional, mm-hmm. when you break it down to some of the most basic functional physiologic concepts, addiction can happen with a relationship with almost anything because what we're really looking at, and if you look at the American Society of Addiction Medicine's definition, it's a disease of brain reward, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. a disease of motivation and the related circuitry that goes on there. So certainly we're talking about neurotransmitters. We're talking about connectivity of Uh, neurons, we're talking about uh, habits, we're talking about all these kind of maybe almost even buzzwords, 
that we see thrown around very often. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of similarities uh, between even the addiction word and when we touch upon subjects of overeating and the obesity question, right? right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, we may get in a little bit more specifically to that throughout the discussion. So uh, that's something that I would, yeah, that's what I throw out there. Okay, great. How about you, Lynette? I'm glad that uh, Matt brought up the connection with the brain. That's fairly new within the last 20 years, um, scientific research of uh, the things in the brain and maybe specifically with Dr. Amon's work where he began to take pictures of the brain and, and, oh, lo and behold, there's some genetic factors. People are predisposed to becoming addicts. But, But in working with addicts, I found that that particular belief um, could be used as a crutch as much as um, the fact that they, they weren't ready. They weren't ready to uh, do something else about their, their lifestyle. So the very simple definition that I use for addiction with, with my clients and, and the people that are saying, well, when do you think this will be a problem for me, Lynette? Well, it's a problem whenever it separates you from relationship. We are meant to be in relationship with others. The uh, AA program is very high on accountability. It's one of the strengths of the program and, and why it has spanned decades of success is that accountability factor. Oh, you're struggling. Your thoughts aren't right. You get to a meeting. You get in a circle of accountability. So whenever the substance, the thinking the process addiction, the eating, the shopping, whenever that in our mind separates us from being in relationship with other people, loved ones, accountability partners, sponsors, um, then it's time to address it. Mm-hmm. Then it's a problem because isolation is number one, number one in um, now you're off your recovery path because you're beginning to be secretive and to isolate. So I I think um, the quality of relationships is uh, one of the defining factors of whether or not what you're using is, um, is an addiction for you. Mm -hmm. Interesting. I like that. Now you said that Dr. Amon's work, who I'm familiar with, it's brilliant, that people are genetically predisposed to addiction do you know what that root is? I mean, is it a, what it, what is the genetic predisposition? It's a particular neurons that get passed down. So, so that if there's a, um, you know, there's a mother and a father and one of them has either become an alcoholic, say, mm-hmm. for instance, mm-hmm. um, but um, her father was also an alcoholic. And then she became an alcoholic and then she's going to have children and not every child, let's say that couple has four kids okay. and not every child is going to have the same gene, mm-hmm. which is in the brain. Um, it's just part of the DNA and they're, they're beginning to identify that. Oh, you have this gene. This is, this is why your struggle is so much more intense as another person who doesn't have that. But, but then she'll have these four kids and they won't all become addicts. 
mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, as I've studied families, it's so it's so fascinating that that when uh, when you when you sit down and and have that one on one with them, you find out okay, one of them was so paranoid to not ever become an addict, they never picked up a drink. Mm-hmm. They, they, they would not do it. So we don't know. We don't know. But they knew about that predisposition. Mm-hmm. And then others in the family did become drinkers and never became alcoholics. Right. So there's so many variables. It's, it's just you know, you can see that it's impossible to really know that. It's really about gathering information about yourself. Mm-hmm. Okay, do I have that? Mm-hmm. Um, wh- what are my boundaries? What are my limits? You know, will drinking take me to more addiction? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you know, and so everyone's path is is very different. But if you were to, if you knew that information, because you saw it in your genetic history, mm-hmm. you would be you, you would be and should be hypersensitive to it. Got it. Oh, okay. This is part of my genealogy. Mm-hmm. I have I have people who have you know have tried to drink socially because it always starts socially, mm-hmm. and and they couldn't stop. Yeah, that's that's a real red flag. Just just as just like I know that my all of my uh, my grandparents before me have had arthritis, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and now I'm learning that. You know, I was predisposed to it, and that's in my gene pool. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that was one thing I was going to ask you: is does it jump a generation? Let's say the grand one of the grandparents was an alcoholic. Um, the let's say the daughter was fine, never had a problem with alcohol, never abused it. What about her child? We we don't want to say it skips generations. Mm-hmm. We want to say that some children will. Uh, will get that DNA, but it isn't a hundred percent chance that they will just because it's in the brain of the parent. Okay. It doesn't. And interestingly, Janine, this is where we get into that discussion of the nutrigenomics and how our genetic material is contributed and then interacts with our environment Within the definition, uh, again, that American Society of Addiction Medicine, uh, they state in addiction, there's a significant impairment in executive function. Now, would you explain what executive and function is? Just just for people, what is executive function? Absolutely, absolutely. It's, you know, an inability to abstain consistently, uh, impairment in behavioral control. Uh, This is literally linked to a enzyme in the body called COMT, catecholamine uh, O-methyltransferase. Okay. And so one of the reasons I know this is I personally uh, have what we call a SNP or an alteration in the genetic code in both of my copies of this gene. And it predisposes one to a very high susceptibility to stress mm-hmm. in stressful environments. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is the enzyme that is associated with recycling and breaking down the dopamine in our body, which is a main stress neurotransmitter and hormone. Okay. The reason I use those words 
uh, interchangeably is because hormones neurotransmitters have literally the same sort of structural backbone chemically. Okay. In the brain, dopamine is classified a neurotransmitter. Mm-hmm. In other uh, peripheral parts of the body, it's classified as a as a hormone. Hmm. Okay. Uh, this this SNP, as we call it, or in my personal case and others, a double SNP. So almost like a double thumbs down mm-hmm. in my area of genes uh, with this. It leads to a buildup because you're not breaking down your dopamine very effectively. And this, when combined with other enzymes, other genetic realities, uh, just like Lynette's saying, when, when the, those when those mother and father genetics are combined, there's a lot of possible outcomes mm-hmm. combined with other things like, for example, the enzymes that are associated with serotonin. Mm-hmm. When the relationship between those seemingly maybe separate conversations of separate enzymes are added together, that's where we really start getting into the phenotypic or the expression of our genes, the variation there. And I've got to also think because this, you know, genetics, genetics doesn't handcuff us or it doesn't, um, what's the right word? It doesn't predispose us definitively to a certain condition. Our environment that's around us is very, very important. Mm -hmm. And so in this question, when there's a combination of genetics with the other environmental factors, I've got to think, believe that when we maybe have, there is a child who does have some level of predisposition, the the thoughts that they create, the emotions that they create around what they might see as one of their parents or another sibling's um, difficulties could influence them to create the environment around them where they will adapt in a different way, potentially away from that addiction. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, you said, Matt, that you have two copies of this enzyme. So how has that uh, affected your behavior, your social drinking yeah, boy, now now we're definitely uh, being true to the keeping it real with Janine. <laughs> you don't have to talk about it if you don't want to. We can. Oh no, I, I'm more I'm more than happy to. Okay, I'm great. more than happy Thank to because this is something that I had to I had to deal with once I found out that information. So as I, I, I there was a purpose to me bringing up the relationship to the enzymes for serotonin recycling. Mm-hmm. The dopamine enzymes, COMT, uh, and it, it, it processes some other hormones, but that's its main job when you look at the, you know, when you start to dig into the literature. When there's a snip in that one, when it doesn't work right, quote unquote, mm-hmm. then it slows down the enzyme's activity. We get a buildup of excess dopamine, you might think. Okay. For serotonin, the SNPs in serotonin, which are a little bit more recognizable enzyme because it's actually the target of a lot of depression uh, and, uh, let's say, say emotional psychiatric uh, medications, mm-hmm. it's the MAOs. Right. That's what breaks down serotonin. 
And when those are snipped or quote unquote not working right, that actually speeds up serotonin breakdown. And so you can have an individual like myself where serotonin is rapidly depleted from the interneuronal spaces, the space of the connectivity from one neuron to another, and dopamine is in excess. And it doesn't take much to understand that that's an imbalance. Mm -hmm. and, and so there are ways to influence you know, the, the, these things, but understanding that can certainly be a pathway to, to taking action, let's just say. Mm -hmm. Okay. So what have you done differently then because of this? Or what have you noticed in yourself? What have I noticed in myself? Well, you know, this is where we get into, you know, we, we risk getting off into, uh, you know, the other discussions of inflammation and the things that are associated with that because that's very, very central to, to this conversation. Mm -hmm. And you're not going to change your genetics, right? But you can change those environmental influences. And I think that's where, uh, as Lynette stated, gathering more information, and you gather that information about the environment, because if there's one rule in the it, physiologically that we all adhere to, that is that we adapt to our surroundings and it's really very, very important how we set up those surroundings because it will dictate how we get from point A where we're at to where we're going point B. Mm -hmm. Good point. So part of my journey, just to keep it really brief, okay. was dealing with the inflammation. For me, it was a gut issue. Mm -hmm. There's many types of gut issues. Mine was candida. Mm -hmm. And you can't just assume you have candida. You can't just look at your symptoms and say, oh, I've got candida. I know a lot of people do that. You don't starve candida out. That doesn't work. Mm -hmm. So dealt with that myself personally. And then I went through a process besides the physical and physiological fixes that were involved with that. I went through a process of being coached and through core alignment, just like Lynette is trained in. And that was the other side of things. That was where I got a chance to dive deep and ask the questions that allowed me to deal with the ideas about myself that I had improperly established as part of the building physiologic dysfunction and difficulty relating to stressful to stresses. Mm -hmm. Okay. Wow. Great. Thank you so much for your transparency. I really appreciate it. Um, before, I'm going to ask uh, Lynette to weigh in in just a moment here, but I do want to say that for those who are interested in inflammation, Matt and I have a really good podcast episode on that, and it's episode number 21, if anybody's interested. Okay. Lynette, would you like to weigh in? Yes, I as i'm I'm hearing this um, we'll just call it the the big picture mm -hmm. of addiction because it's not ever a single thing mm -hmm. that causes addiction. 
these these pieces that Matt has talked about, and and the environmental piece is huge. And and so as as I worked with uh, with addicts, and it we know that when there's a substance involved, they are physiologically causing changes in their body that are going to make them even less successful in recovery as long as they're using. And when we're talking about a process addiction, we're just, now I don't want to call it, you know, just the mind, but it hasn't taken a toll on the body itself. Hmm. Mind, spirit, gut, it hasn't affected all those things when let's say it's um, a gambling addiction okay. because it isn't something that is taken into the body mm-hmm. through the mouth, through the veins. Okay. So it really ups the ante when it's a substance, alcohol or drug. Mm-hmm. And, and so, uh, you know, the reason you're doing this is because the definition of addiction has changed in our country. It isn't just substances that we take in. Mm-hmm. It, it is you know, spilled onto so many other levels. And those are all about thinking. And so my work is very focused on thought processes. But when you said, Matt, what does he do differently? Mm-hmm. What, what has he done differently to, uh, to, to compensate for this new knowledge? That, I see that as my job, helping them have awareness about who they are, knowing everything they can possibly know about themselves their past, their present, so that they can figure out how to be successful. Mm-hmm. So what do you do? What do you do differently? And that's why working with anyone who says, I think I have an addiction is custom work. <laughs> when, when I was working in um, a rehab facility, mm-hmm. there was a very uh, cut and dried way and everyone uh, was put through that program. Mm. Right. Here, here's, here's the protocols we follow. Here's the workbook. Here are the lessons. You know, we we present it this way. Uh, it's a it's a brain disease, and so it's you know it's not your fault, but you need to learn to manage your life like diabetes. Now you have diabetes. Now you have cancer. You will be managing your life from here on out. And they give them tools. And what I, what I found is that people will graduate from a rehabilitation facility. 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, but their thinking is still the same. Mm -hmm. They still have unresolved hurts from the past. The things that may have caused the addiction to begin with, they have unmet needs that where they have not got to the bottom of, you know, why that need is important. Mm -hmm. You know, what are their values? What are, what, how did their beliefs become limiting when they were meant to be motivating? So, um, I, I pretty much try to just go in and do brain surgery with each conversation <laughs> and, until the person can feel empowered to move forward. And, and, that's, and that's done, you know, back to birth, or maybe they were 16 or, you know, how, however long, but everyone's journey is so different. Mm-hmm. And I remember um, a client that came out of um, a 60-day detox program and had done all the right things and had shown up for meetings and had gotten a sponsor. And what she realized after, um, and she worked with me for about 10 months is that she was peeling off these layers of addiction. So it started with alcohol, 
alcohol was like the last addiction. And, mm-hmm. and then there were uh, pain medications, mm-hmm. and those were the next thing that she dealt with. And then shoplifting was the next thing. Oh, I, I'd worked with her for six months before, that sh- before I knew that shoplifting was on board. Wow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I didn't know that was because that wasn't the addiction she wanted to talk about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so what are the roots of that addiction? They might not be the same mm-hmm. as the one that is showing. The one that we see when a person is 350 pounds and says, you know, this is, this is my coping behavior. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Eating to numb out is my coping behavior. So what we know about all the choices that we make in a coping behavior, you know, mm-hmm. the list, we all have one. Matt has some, I have some, you know, the, the things we choose are that we want to feel better. We want to feel normal. We want to feel comforted. And that's how we choose our coping behavior. And a lot of times it is numbing, which in our mind is feeling better. It, we're not mm-hmm. thinking about how I'm going to feel tomorrow. We're thinking about how we want to feel right now. And the pain is too great. We need to be out of pain right now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that's I, how nice segue. I love it. So when you and I had talked before, I had written something down, which I wanted to quote from you, and then you and Matt can talk about it. Pain, whether it's physical pain or emotional pain, both of which register in the same parts of the brain, is the root cause of addiction, not the substance itself. In other words, what addicts are really doing is avoiding pain by using or doing something that makes them feel or makes them unable to feel it. Hmm. So maybe the two yeah. two of you could uh, elucidate on sure. that a bit. I think so, that's yeah. what makes. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I I think that's what makes this so interesting because pain is a it's a it's a stressor, mm-hmm. right? The perception of future pain is certainly a stressor. Mm-hmm. Not to get back into the genetic conversation, I, I'm not going to go there, but I will just mention the interesting thing when you bring up the word pain is that same COMT issue is associated with pain tolerance. Mm-hmm. Okay. And this is where we get into such, really, I feel a beautiful melding. Because I'm a very holistic practitioner, right? And and this is where we get into a real beautiful dance of the physiology to, as Lynette said, the deep roots of why this this compensation mechanism. Mm -hmm. Okay, why why did we choose this? Mm -hmm. And when... When we're stressing about something, we're seeking, we're, we're looking for this, this, this brain reward. And it doesn't matter where we find, where we anchor, you know, that reward in. It's very, very individual and very, very personal, just as, just as Lynette was saying. And the, the shoplifting is going to supply the reward to the brain in this in the same way as 
overeating. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to, you know, skate around some of the addictive substances and drugs or whatnot, because there's certainly some, you know, deeper, uh, deeper implications there. But if we take two virtually benign activities like eating or shopping, mm-hmm. <laughs> how do they turn into an addiction, both of them? Well, the importance of the emotional work is getting into those roots, right? Resolving those. The importance of the physical work, as I view it, is in dealing with the commonality of the brain reward those things provide. Mm-hmm. Does that mm-hmm. make some sense? Yeah, it does. And I'll, I'll fess up myself when I was in a relationship where I had a lot of money and, and things started to go downhill. I was not happy. I shopped. But I knew what I was doing. I even said to a friend, I know exactly what I'm doing, but it makes me feel good for a little while. And and I've got some really fun new clothes, and uh, but I know why I'm doing it. And then after the relationship ended, no, I stopped. <laughs> it's like I didn't, I didn't continue it because I didn't need it anymore to kind of fill the vacuum of not getting the affection that I needed in the relationship. Mm-hmm. That that sounds exactly like why most shopping addictions start. There's an emotional need there. It, you're not a shopaholic when you're age three, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> so, so shopping is an adult behavior, mm-hmm. men and women, but mostly women. Mm-hmm. These are just statistical uh, facts uh, because it, as we've alluded to before, it's an acceptable form of feeling better. Mm-hmm. Who really looks at the credit card statement? Mm-hmm. You know, the person sending it. So, so it's very easy to hide that. But but women are are the the you know the main gender that chooses that as an outlet. And you know, let's just address for a minute technology and how easy it is to keep your addiction alive mm. without anyone knowing. Good point. Shopping on your laptop, they have made it so simple. I don't have to go to the grocery store to cook dinner anymore. I know. <laughs> right? Uh-huh. I know. <laughs> so, so some of the awareness that we're having around these addictions is because technology has made it so easy to connect. Mm-hmm. Texting, texting your dealer. You, you don't have to go into a store. You, you can easily hide so many kinds of addictions. And in fact, the internet supports these addictions. Absolutely. <laughs> as I'm, as I'm, yes. And there's a new statistic that uh, depending on how much TV you watch per day, if it's between, uh, if it's over three hours a day, mm-hmm. that your expenditures and your shopping is at least 30% higher than someone who keeps it under two. Wow. Interesting. Interesting. So give that a thought for a minute. Uh-huh. How we are not in anything, really. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, I think I think I do keep it under, so I'm I'm <laughs> I'm okay there. You know, I, and I just had another thought too that when I was doing the shopping addiction, I had the most adorable figure at that time. So 
everything look good on me. And I got lots of oohs and ahs and oh, that looks so great on you. And, and I got the kind of attention that I wasn't getting at home. So many reasons to overshop. Very much reward motivated behavior. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the social network and the importance of that when you're trying to alter addictive behavior. I would think there would be some people who can do it on their own, but um, I would think that you need a really good support network to be able to really, truly alter your behavior on a long-term basis. I, I would have to agree that that accountability piece, no matter where you get it, is certainly a key part in being successful a year from now, two years, five years from now, when you're starting. Because now, if, if that made sense, that in the beginning of changing that habit, mm-hmm. you know, let's say that every Friday is payday and I'm used to going and, and dropping $200 at Nordstrom on payday Friday, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And I want accountability for that, for that behavior. So I'm going to make sure that I do something else instead. I'm going to make sure that I have accountability partners. Mm-hmm. So can you connect easier? Because of the internet, absolutely. So it's that uh, it's it's that positive negative of technology and the internet making addiction more possible and more secretive, but also allowing that accountability, that connection, that intention follow through, um, where people will will check on you. Because like you know, like this meeting where technology provides this platform for us. If that answers your question, yes, there are both there. But in the beginning of changing a habit, because recovery is about you know deciding, I really don't want to. This addiction has it is altering my life. It is altering my relationships. It is altering my brain. It is altering my future. Yes, I want to do something about it. And and so yes, the larger the group of accountability, the the more success. Mm-hmm. Here's, here's the sad part, Janine. At least two-thirds of my clients, I say, so um, who will support you in this endeavor in our conversations, mm-hmm. what, whatever the goal is for that week or that day? Mm-hmm. 90% of them say, just you. You're all I have. Really? Wow. So... So does, does this have something to do with the isolation factor that you were talking about earlier? I think it's because by the time they call me, they have learned that isolation is, is how they relapsed. Mm-hmm. That's where it starts. They get secretive, they get isolated. And then all the loved ones, the people that they had, have all written them off. Mm-hmm. And, and then, and then I, and, and I, I, you know, was shocked in the beginning and, and now I um, just realized that this is where their addiction has taken them to a place where um, there wasn't, there isn't anyone there mm-hmm. because they couldn't change their behavior on their own. Got it. Your family and friends and your social network can only take so much. Mm-hmm. And they start right. dropping away if you can't, there isn't evidence of your, your being able to change on your own. Mm-hmm. 
and they may not be the support network that a person needs. Mm-hmm. And I remember, and it was a, it was five years ago today because one of my clients is celebrating five years of sobriety. Aww. And he, he texted me earlier and said, Oh, this, I just, you wanted to just, you know, thank you again. But the people who brought him into the, the program mm-hmm. were his family and they couldn't wait to drop him off and go out drinking. <laughs> Oh, jeez. Right? Yeah. So, wow. so, so, so he knew he had a problem, but they still didn't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and he is happy to be clean and sober today. But his family, his children, his adult children, still look forward to family times where they get to drink. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Everyone has a different, has a different motivation. Mm-hmm. And until it impacts their life in a negative way, they won't see it as an addiction. Mm -hmm. They'll just see it as a coping behavior that is how they get through. Right. Which I think a lot of people interpret, especially if it's, you know, having a drink when you get home from work and, and having however many you can, you can tolerate. And then on the weekend, um, you know, you get together with friends and you drink and, where is the line between just social behavior and addiction, mm-hmm. you know, using, using a substance as a coping behavior? How do you help people determine that? Or what, what are clues for you that when you hear somebody, you think, oh, you know, they're not at that point where it's, it's a tool to be able to cope. Um, and, it, and it really is an addiction as opposed to just somebody who, if we're talking about alcohol, maybe somebody who socially drinks now and then? That's a very personal question. Wouldn't you say, Matt, that without a person's awareness that um, their, their life is going closer to a destructive place than just a entertainment phase, that their awareness is changing? That, as you said, they're socially drinking. But when it turns into drinking at lunch and drinking from a flask out of your purse and drinking it at uh, during breakfast to stave off any um, symptoms of withdrawal, th- then the awareness can change. Do you have anything to chime in there, Matt? Yes, I do. You know, it's interesting. I come from a background, a training in healthcare that probably the primary principle is that the power that made the body heals the body. And this is what's called an innate function. Mm -hmm. That's not cognitive, right? Innate is, it's, it's above that almost, or it's foundational to that. And it really throws a different perspective sometimes on this isolation. Now, I think that very often, and what I'm going to say here, is that the isolation, if the cognitive brain is realizing we're we're on a destructive path, Mm And the innate brain is more in control, although less obvious to our to our mind 
to our thinking thought processes, then what's the innate brain going to do? It's going to try to remove us, right, as a protective mechanism. And I just think it's intensely interesting thinking about this when there, through the perspective of one of the, if we go back to kind of the food and the overeating, mm-hmm. one of the highest predisposing factors of somebody being obese is the fact that their friends and family are, mm-hmm. right? And so th- now this is not to say, don't get me wrong here, I do not want to label the isolation as a good thing. I think that in many conversations, we attach good and bad to things way too quickly. They just are. Mm -hmm. Why are they? So the isolation actually removes us very often from the same social circles that, (laughs) you know, gave us our in to whatever that addiction was. Mm -hmm. And and, um, again, I think it's just very, very interesting uh, when we start to marry some of these these uh, perspectives to this topic of addiction particularly, mm-hmm. because it does have such an intricate intertwining of the physical with the emotional, with the social. Mm -hmm. This is something that Lynette had said to me when we talked a while back, and it really stuck with me. And I think it's uh, applicable here. She said, the bigger the club gets, the more acceptable a behavior becomes. Sure. So if you're, uh, you know, if, if all of the people that you're hanging out with are overweight, it becomes much more acceptable for you to overeat and be overweight too. Right. We're provided examples of how others are dealing with their stressors, their future visions of pain. We're confiding in others. And from my perspective as a care provider on the medical side of things, functional medicine side of things, to be specific, mm-hmm. as I recovered from my combination of problems, depression, addictions, dysbiosis, inflammation, candida, thyroid disease. Mm -hmm. It took the emotional work. It took me re-engaging intentionally. It took the physiologic work. And I personally believe this is why when you look a little deeper at what I do, it's functional health team, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It's not, oh, I'm going to go have a visit with my doctor, my specialist, mm-hmm. who's going to look at their compartment of things. I personally believe and I work with people intentionally in a setting where they have those areas of support. They're their personal team where they can have the time with Lynette or someone with her skills to gather more information as she stated. I think that's a beautiful way to put it about, okay, well, how did this happen? And that's where you start to uncover where, what in these relationships 
contributed to your understanding that this was a acceptable way to gain that reward for the brain. So Matt, from a physiological medical perspective, what kinds of things, like if someone comes to you with um, an addiction issue, what kinds of things, you know, Lynette's talked about the, the coaching perspective, like medically, what, what kinds of things would you look for um, that you'd want to get information about that, that might be contributing? Like you, you talked about inflammation. Absolutely. I'm going to look for signs of the approximately 90 different manifestations of an immune system that has been turned against the individual. Mm-hmm. Largely, these, uh, they, you know, there's a top three, we might say, in terms of culprits there. Okay. Number one is the gut. And I already shared some of my experience, but I will say there's many, many flavors of what we call dysbiosis. Mine was the candida or a yeast, a fungus. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's parasites, there's bacterial, uh, pathogenic bacterial organisms. There's stress perforates the lining of the gut in and of itself. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm So we start to look at these three or the major culprits, the gut, poor or old infected dental work is way up there. Mm. Whether it's number two or three, I can't tell you, but it's way up there. And then we've got toxicity. The reason why toxicity is in there is because our immune system, it, it itself doesn't have a brain in terms of the, well, again, the higher critical thinking brain, it doesn't make decisions on that level. What it knows is that there's an invader, an assault on the body, and that triggers it into action. And so the immune response is a generic one. At least the initial immune responses are, are, are a generic one. And that's inflammation. And once that has become prolonged, mm-hmm. then it starts to trigger deeper levels of our immune system. And that's where we get into the learned immune system, the acquired immune system. And we start programming our immune cells, our white blood cells, the lymphocytes, to attack. And so whether it's a toxin that's embedded, attached to enzymes of which this, you know, things like the COMT mm-hmm. and the MAO, mm-hmm. <laughs> MTHFR, I'll throw in there, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Because the mention discussion, it, we're not going to get into it, but it does touch upon that. You better believe it. These enzymes that carry out the physiology are, they get attached to by heavy metals and other organic type of toxins. And Sometimes we naturally, slowly remove these from our body. Very true. But there are, are certainly ways to accelerate that too. So I, again, I start looking for signs of it, largely in the immune system, the gut. Uh, certainly one of the really cool tests that's gaining some ground in terms of uh, inflammation discovery is infrared thermography. Mm-hmm. where you can take a scan of the body and you pick up on hot spots. You can see where uh, the jawline or dental might be infected. You might see a thyroid glowing. 
Uh, very often you see the liver because the liver is dealing with all the toxins. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, toxins are stored in fat. You know, the inflammation will show up certainly through there. Uh, liver signs definitely are, are in there. So nausea, skin rashes, allergies, asthma, chronic sinus. Okay. These are all overactive immune systems, the IBS, <laughs> 90%, 9 out of 10 people that suffer from a thyroid condition are autoimmune. So practically, the fact that you have a thyroid struggle is a sign that your immune system is fighting your body. But they are things associated with chronic inflammation. And, you know, there's some people in the holistic realm that are out, are out there talking a lot about how you know it's a, is it a chicken or the egg is it the is it the brain inflammation that causes addiction or is it the addiction that causes brain inflammation because the substances you might find yourself using can certainly lead to the inflammatory conditions and you know as Lynette mentioned earlier the substance itself will, could have that effect in on the GI and then the physiology but then again there's absolutely a very good argument for the opposite to be happening too, where, say, an infection in the body can lead the, the body, in particular, say, the brain, down a pathway of inflammation, which then contributes to an accentuated imbalance in the function of some of these enzymes. And then, as we spoke earlier, certainly laying the groundwork for the possibility of uh, imbalances in what would be good, healthy amounts of dopamine, serotonin, uh, and, and, and much, much more. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Do you have anything to add, Lynette? Matt has reminded me that the we're in the business of motivation mm -hmm. and that the, the difference. And, and so often I, I, I can't tell you how, how many times I want to say to a client who has, who has shown up for six weeks straight for each of our appointments and cries through the entire thing. Mm. And I want to say, I want you to start on some B vitamins and cut all gluten from your diet and up your water and do a 12-hour fast every day before you talk to me again. <laughs> so that we can make some forward movement, some progress in the thinking, because you know that, that the inflammation of the body is affecting how they're thinking. Mm -hmm. It's affecting their emotions. It's affecting their, um, their brain processes, their heart processes, their, their gut, all the places where those brain neurons um, exist. And, and so the, to motivate a person who has only been motivated out of pain to pick up the phone mm -hmm. or, or to make an appointment with Matt, our pain motivates us. But then do, do I want the pain to continue to motivate them to schedule coaching conversations? No, I want to empower them to, to become self-motivating. Right. And the way that that happens is, is these what might be incremental uh, ways that they're shifting their thinking. Oh, I can start taking more vitamin C. 
mm-hmm. easy way to, mm-hmm. to start supporting the body. So, so that brings up a issue for me that I'm, I'm not really allowed to address, and that is this nutritional side in getting clients stable. Mm-hmm. And the body, it's a package deal. Like, like when, when I was talking about um, clients coming out of, you know, 60 days of, of being in an enforced sober environment where they're taking classes and they're learning uh, ways to manage their life when they go back. Mm-hmm. But this nutritional piece is such a key to how the, how the brain re- reacts. Right. And I, I, you know, my desire is to see a client continually improve continually that you're better this week than you were last week mm-hmm. in your, in your thinking and your motivation and your success. And we're, and we're sharing those things and we're, and we're constantly moving forward, but you can't negate the, the functional medicine piece mm-hmm. where that's, yeah. that's a key piece in keeping a person motivated because physiologically they are feeling like staying with it. Mm-hmm. The depression is lifting. So now they, they don't want to isolate. Now they want to uh, take care of their children. Now they want to go to work. And they don't want to sabotage their success with a flask or a paycheck that goes to shopping or, um, or pornography. Mm-hmm. Yep. I know for myself, just uh, dealing with the gut inflammation uh, and working with Matt, that my whole outlook is way better. I was so depressed. <laughs> that was one of the things that it was yeah. just kind of a side effect. I, you know, I kind of gradually... It it went away, you know, and I just realized that, wow, I, I don't wake up in the morning feeling like, oh, God, I, I bounce out of bed much better than I used to when I had a lot of inflammation. Sure. Well, and and, and I think the important thing to connect there, it's 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 really not so uh, difficult to, to understand because that gut inflammation equals the gut tissue not doing its job because mm. it's inflamed. What is its job? To absorb our nutrients. That's mm-hmm. our nutrition. Right. Nutrition, it is what nutrients, vitamins, minerals, cofactors, amino acids, fatty acids are we taking in? And, you know, in 1983, the studies were already out showing that a positive correlation between vitamin supplementation and increased length of sobriety. Oh, interesting. So, and what's, I feel, you know, just touch on this and then leave real quick. What's, what's sad is a lot of programs that do, I, you know, bring you into a place and teach you all these mechanisms, but what are they feeding you while you're in there? Mm-hmm. Right? Probably not the most, the most <laughs> nutritious food. They're probably working on a shoestring budget supplied by government funding. Yeah, which probably means a lot of starch, which equals sugar. It means a lot of starch, absolutely, and a lot of processed foods. And, you know, when it comes to these things, you know, I think this would be a good spot just to real quickly run through what we know nutritionally and give people listening some some ammunition to start to maybe take some control on nutrition because I can and I will and I'm and – I'm, very happy to pick up and, 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 and directly state some of these things. But 
The hydration is key, water. Mm-hmm. Our fish oils, because I think we've discussed maybe in the inflammation um, podcast that we did, Janine, the, this whole issue of having to take loads of omega-3s has largely resulted from the fat-free food craze of yeah. the previous decades, yeah. where they removed the healthy fats, disposing us to inflammation in these issues. <laughs> mm-hmm. We know that the isoflavonoids that are found in vegetables and fruits, we know that these help with addiction. Uh, specifically in legumes and alfalfa, uh, there's studies out there that show that they're effective in helping the recovery from alcohol addiction specifically. And, you know, I would say that if they really expanded that research, they would likely find that it helps with other addictions. But certainly, you know, you can understand why a lot of money and, 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 and effort focus goes into alcohol addiction. It's so detrimental, you know, in, in our society. But eating, you know, your alfalfa, the legume family, greens, which has your B vitamins, like Lynette stated, avocados, there's your healthy fats, your nuts and seeds, reducing your processed foods, starches, flour, sugar, mm-hmm. right? Uh, there's certain herbs that will s- help this conversation turmeric black pepper ginger and interestingly enough ginger is cited as something that helps addiction and ginger helps to stimulate gi motility it, it, it's one of the things that i'll employ in somebody who has bacterial overgrowth SIBO, ibs when their gut musculature is not moving food through their body at a rate that allows for proper uh, absorption, mm-hmm. mixing, and then excretion of the toxins. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I wanted to just kind of segue there into, you know, maybe some, you know, take-home type of information on, on diet and, and, and things that can be used and we know are already shown to help mm-hmm. with, the, with the addiction question. No, I think that's great. Thank you. Thank you very much. One thing that we didn't talk about at all, and, and we're getting to the end of our, our time here, but is the opioid crisis and uh, people needing pain medication after surgery or, you know, a, some kind of a accident or whatever, um, and then get, becoming addicted and and then the, the ensuing finding drugs to, to keep the addiction going. And do either of you have any comment on that? Well, I, I, from my end, I'll just keep it fairly uh, short and brief. So I think we, at this point in, in, in scientific thought and, and understanding, we understand where there is a commonality with many with addiction in general. And then there's another level of substances, right, that have a whole nother propensity for being addictive. Mm-hmm. And I certainly think that that the opioids qualify as mm-hmm. being as being that in that category, that class of things that that are that even elevate this discussion to another level. And I'll I'll just leave it at that. What about you, Lynette? I have understanding of why it's taken place. 
because of my family situation and having kids who were adult children who uh, had sports injuries. Mm. So they went to the doctor who said, well, we'd, we'd like to see if we want to make sure that the inflammation comes down, right? There you go. Before we go in there and do some surgery and mess things up. And, and so we'd like you to, to go on this painkiller so that you can keep doing your physical job. And I'll check in with you in about six months. Mm. So what I'm noticing in Oregon is that there are a very limited number of physicians who will get that kind of training, who are interested in adding another uh, certification to the, the practice they already have. And, and what they end up doing, because there are so few of them that are working with addicts to monitor their medications and help them get off of them with other pharmaceuticals, Mm-hmm. Here's Suboxone. Here's a, you know another something that will handle your anxiety, so you can get off of this. There are so few that they are absolutely inundated with patients because the the regular medical doctor who is actually responsible for that opioid addiction taking place, mm-hmm. the awareness wasn't there. Now it's there, and I, I'm just seeing them turn a blind eye. But the other issue is that. If you are, if you know you have this addiction and then you, and you need to have a surgery, right? Mm -hmm. Like, like you're already there or Mm -hmm. a car Mm -hmm. accident, Mm -hmm. heaven forbid. And you go in and, and you know, you're not wearing a bracelet that says I'm an opioid addict, Mm -hmm. like in other medical (laughs) conditions. So, um, and, and I remember asking an anesthesiologist last year. So if a person comes in and says, I'm addicted to Oxycontin, but I'm going to have a surgery. He said, there are so many hundreds of choices of medication to use. All we have to do is have that information. Mm-hmm. But the addict is embarrassed or, or if it's a car accident, they don't get a chance to say it. Right. Right. And, and they also, if they're doing, let's say they're four years off of opioids, they've been nothing but Advil. They've been very, um, you know, faithful to stay on board with that, with their recovery program. And then they have a surgery. And I've heard them say this, I'm pretty sure I can handle it. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll take it for three days as recommended. And then I'll just get off. Then I'll just go right to Tylenol three or, and so that's the thinking that they're feeling feeling really strong about their ability to go back to it, which, which is the human brain. That, that's what we do. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, I can handle that. So what usually happens? What you, <laughs> I would say that what usually happens is they end up staying on the pain medication longer than they wanted to. Mm. And, and then they get afraid. They get scared because they know what life they were living before, and then they will try and go cold turkey, and they might need counseling for it. Mm-hmm. Or, or they have their two-week follow-up, their surgery follow-up, and the doctor says, yeah, you should be off this now, and they will ask for another script. Mm-hmm. Or they won't, or, or they'll or they say, what else can I take? They might ask then. Mm-hmm. so that they can get back to it. And then they'll give themselves a longer period of time then 
say the three days, I'll just take it for three days and then I'll be all right. Mm-hmm. But it is very difficult to get the medical support. But according to this anesthesiologist, he said, you, you just ask. There are so many other choices when we find out what they were addicted to, mm-hmm. to manage the pain without them needing that. And they will say, and then the, the doctor should know that. Right. That's awesome. I'm glad you shared that because I, I have a feeling that, that that can hit home for somebody who's listening. Anything else for you to add there, Matt? No, uh, not necessarily. I, uh, I just thank you very much for uh, having me as part of this. Uh, as you stated, uh, I had a loss of a very, very close friend uh, to heroin and painkillers. Uh, she had struggled for maybe even a couple decades with mm. the uh, in that fight and uh, it's just an absolutely awful thing to go through and uh, terrible for the family and it's 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 just, it's just very hard so uh, having open discussion about this is is very very important it's dear to my heart uh, i'll invite anyone who might feel moved there's a a closed private facebook group that Functional Health Team, uh, my organization, moderates called Crowdsourcing Solutions for Addiction. And the whole concept with the crowdsourcing solutions is that at some point, we're in this together and you you don't know who it is that needs a sympathetic or empathetic ear. Mm -hmm. Uh, You don't know who it is that holds that key piece of information that might change somebody's life. And so we need some mechanisms like that, I believe, for people to go and to engage with others in a, in a, in a safe environment. So, uh, again, I certainly want to offer that as, a, as a, um, a, a resource for anyone who's moved. So would somebody just go to Facebook and then type in crowdsourcing solutions for addiction? You got it. That's it. And then, so it's a closed group, so they ask to to be able to join. Yeah, they'll ask to join, and we've got a, a few questions that we ask everyone uh, mm-hmm. coming in because, you know, we want to we want to screen for those who are looking to simply peddle their <laughs> maybe product and that sort of a thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're, they're not invited. Right, um, right. Yeah. <laughs> okay, great. And how else can people connect with you? if they wish to. Yeah, people can connect uh, with me and with us by going to functionalhealthteam.com. That's Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. T-E-A-M. We engage with clients by providing them a personal health care team in their pocket. I kind of joke, it's like having your doctor in your pocket, but it's better because you've got... (laughs) You know, your emotional support, your nutritionist, you know, maybe a music therapist or other sorts of things. You've got those that you can pull out your phone, your tablet, computer. Uh, you can text them. You can, in any sort of imaginable way of reaching out in the time that you need and expect within a reasonable amount of time, expect a response back. Cool. <laughs> 
And how about you? Thank you, Matt. And how about you, Lynette? If there's anything you'd like to say to wrap up and then tell our listeners how they can connect with you. Yes, I, I just am so grateful for yet another opportunity to let people who are in recovery, wanting to be in recovery, need to be in recovery, to know that there are solutions. There are ways to uh, get started. There's new information. And just to keep that conversation open, um, it's much easier to have the conversation today um, than it was even even five years ago um, because, so, because it's so widespread in our country. And, and I don't know a family who isn't touched by it in, in some way. So the conversation is there to be had. So to be courageous, to step out and find a resource that you can connect with, mm-hmm. someone that is is your go-to so you can get started on your road to recovery. And, and just don't quit. Don't quit. Keep, keep looking for the answer that you need. Mm-hmm. And for further information, the best way to either just, you know, to, to read my blogs about about recovery and and brain changes and just different ideas about where to start they would look at my website loveyourliferecovery.com and there are ways to connect with me there and schedule a breakthrough session which is a one hour conversation to just get support and, and find out what you need to get moving the direction that you want your life to go so there's email and phone numbers on that website and that's that's the best way to get started. Great. So that's loveyourliferecovery.com. Okay. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Lynette Isaac and Dr. Matt Flory, for your immense contribution. This has been a very important conversation. You've been listening to Keeping It Real with Janine, your guide to living an authentic, healthy life. Inspiring conversations with ordinary people living extraordinary lives. Do you know someone who would benefit from this important conversation? I know you do. Please share with friends and family. Find my podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss out on a great conversation. Show notes can be found on our podcast website, realjanine.com, as well as links to guest webpages, pictures, and you can also download or listen to this conversation, leave comments or questions, and sign up for the Real Janine mail list. That way you can keep up on new episodes, life updates, and always a yummy recipe. And remember, Janine is J-A-N-E-A-N. Thank you so much, Matt and Lynette. Really, really appreciate your time and your input. Thanks for listening. Take care and be well. Be well.